Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back to part two of our first episode of 2023. Thank you for joining us for this second half. So where did we get to, Mark? Do you want to give the listeners a little recap in case they need it? I don't know if they do. Yeah, ho- hopefully you've listened to part one. If you haven't, definitely go go back and listen to that before you come on to part two. Um, but yeah, just in terms of recap, so uh, we've sort of introduced the main characters in this, if you like. So, of course, we've got Meredith Kircher, we've got Amanda Knox, Raphael Solicito and Patrick Lumumba, who was Amanda's boss at the bar. Um, we are at the very beginning of November 2007, so... Amanda Knox, Meredith Kircher have met, they've formed a very quick bond, become friends, but they've only known each other days, and they're living together in a flat in Perugia, and Meredith has been murdered, and it's a barbaric crime scene. It looks like a a sadistic sex attack that has resulted in Meredith's murder. And Amanda and Raphael, who is a boyfriend, are acting very strangely, and Amanda has been brought in for questioning essentially uh, so is Raphael and there's a question mark hanging over her alibi on the night of Meredith's murder and also Amanda has made a confession and confessed that her boss Patrick Lumumba is responsible for the murder but this is uh, pretty much a forced confession really isn't it so um, that's kind of where we, we're at I think uh, I think that kind of summarizes it pretty quickly. I think so definitely so Patrick Lumumba was arrested on suspicion of murder and Amanda Knox and Raphael Solisto were officially named as suspects. So that was kind of where we ended, wasn't it? And by now, the entire world's media had gotten hold of the story and the public interest in the case was astronomical. Vast swathes of journalists and TV news reporters flooded into Perugia. The sheer amount of media presence surrounding the progress of the case was comparable even to that of Madeleine McCann, the British toddler who had vanished in Portugal just a few months prior, and obviously we covered her case in an episode of Seeing Red recently. This kind of intense media coverage naturally added an enormous amount of pressure onto the Italian police to get everything done correctly and to bring about a swift and just conclusion to the case. So before we continue with this, we're going to hear from this week's show sponsor. The faces of Amanda Knox, Raphael Solisto and Patrick Lumumba were obtained by the media and broadcast on every major news outlet and social media channel on the entire globe. As far as the rest of the world was concerned, these three individuals were responsible for the violent murder of an innocent young British student. The interest in the case was so huge that it soon became clear that the case against the three suspects was at a very high risk of becoming a trial by media, a phrase used to describe the impact of television and newspaper coverage on a person's reputation by creating a widespread perception of guilt or innocence before or after a verdict in a court of law. Public opinion of Amanda Knox, largely thanks to the media's brutal portrayal of her, was particularly poor. In Italy, she was deeply despised by most of its citizens and mercilessly demonised in the press, who branded her a narcissistic liar, a murderer and a sexual deviant. A copy of Amanda's private diary, which, unbeknownst to her, had been earlier confiscated by the police, photocopied and then given back to her, was leaked to the press, who had a field day as they released all of her most personal and intimate reflections to the public domain. The multiple entries in the diary, which dated back to August 2007, right up until a few weeks after Meredith's murder, depicted Amanda's secrets, reflections and day-to-day behaviour with nothing held back. A lot of its content was graphic in nature and sexual in nature. And I mean, I really struggle with this because I think it's a really personal thing, but it, it did give the media all the tools that they needed to portray Amanda in the worst possible way. Before long, Amanda's once innocent nickname of Foxy Noxy became then synonymous with a sex-crazed lying sociopath and people called her a rampant slut who had probably killed her flatmate. And it's so difficult, isn't it? Because a diary should be private and that should be somewhere you can just let everything out. I think if if you let anybody inside your head sometimes and they, they really knew what was going on or what you were thinking, they'd never talk to you again. So and a yeah. diary's similar, isn't it? So I think it's a it's a brutal betrayal of, of someone's privacy. I really feel for Amanda at this point because we look at this is such a shit lame example, but we look at contestants on something like Love Island, for example. 
they go on this show, the relatively unknown, pretty much fully unknown. They might have a few thousand followers on Instagram. They come out of the show and they're really famous amongst a certain group of the population. They have millions of followers on Instagram. They're featured in the papers. They become famous overnight and they obviously struggle to cope with that. And that's probably the better side of fame because there's money off the back of it, opportunities. Amanda here has had overnight fame or infamy for all the wrong reasons. There's no one to teach her how to cope in that situation, which the cast of Love Island do get. And mm-hmm. I just think, I think for someone to not crumble at this point, uh, it would take a, a very hard individual to to behave normally and to, to just get on with it. So I really do feel for her. I know that's a lame example, um, but like no, analogy but it's completely to make, true but... because we've also had cases before where we've looked at things like pop idol or x factor yeah and the rise to Danny fame Tetley, and how that yeah. can affect people and it ultimately she hasn't at this point been convicted of anything so therefore i mean this again reminds me so much of all the different people who have had this trial by media and Yes, later on you may get your retribution and you may get payments, but that doesn't change the fact that everyone thought this about you at the time. However, with this, I think this must be even worse. Like Christopher Jeffries definitely is the kind of the first one that springs to my mind as well. But with this, they've even got her own words to use against her. So you can't even then go back and go, well, this was all written about me and it was incorrect and it was lies because you wrote it. Like, oh, it's so tricky. Yeah, and it's taken out of context. I just think to have pages and extracts from your diary published across the global media must have just, must have felt like such a violation. It would have just been mortifying. Mm-hmm. So an interesting entry in the diary, apparently written in the police station the day that Meredith had been discovered, read, So I am at the police station after a long day in which I describe how I was the first person to arrive home and find my flatmate dead. And the strange thing is, after all that has happened, I want to write a song about all this. It would be the first song I've written and would speak to about how someone died in a horrible way and for no reason. So I just kind of read it as like, she's just a bit self-absorbed. She's that sort of person where she's like, how can I do things myself? But the next bit, Bethan. Mm-hmm. I mean... I really struggle with this whole thing because most of me is like, you're ridiculous but then a little bit of me is like well this is just her personal feeling she didn't I, I say it out say, loud yeah. to someone and I, I don't was, know I was gonna say this is just this is a self-absorbed person isn't it who it is oh you know this awful thing has happened I'm gonna write a song about it and I'm gonna fair enough <laughs> oh get my, my feelings God, out but I'm gonna I write a song react, and get but... some attention for that that's like what mm. I think is going on but the next bit this is I a know. very poor choice when of, she also uh, wrote word. about feeling so hungry she could murder a pizza And she wrote, how morbid is that? I'm dying of hunger. I really want to say that I could murder a pizza, but that doesn't seem right. Laura and Don't say it then. I know. and But then she didn't. She wrote it down in something she thought would be kept private. She didn't say it. True. This is her thoughts. And said, okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M-I-R-O.com. That's that's their flatmates, Laura and Philomena. She wrote, Laura and Philomena are really upset. I'm just angry. At the beginning, I was shocked, then sad, then confused. And now I'm really angry. I don't know. I never saw her body and I never saw her blood, so it's as if it hasn't happened. But it did happen, right in the room next to mine. There was blood in the bathroom this morning where I took a shower. And I don't know, like, I just struggle with this because whilst I think what she's saying is awful, and when you read it or you see it written down, it's shocking, 
this is something she thought was completely private and it was her own thoughts mm. and feelings and she didn't expect it to be publicised. Yeah, because I think we, we've talked before, haven't we, about some conversations we have off air that if ever that came out out of context would be awful. But we all do that. We all have conversations and deal with certain things in, in certain ways. We do. We do do that. And then if you think actually your own private thoughts, that's another gear up, isn't it? So yeah, I just, I do think as much as I'm judging it, we should never have known this and what she'd said. So it's almost like we can't know it. It didn't happen. It doesn't exist. She never said it because we shouldn't know that she did. Unsurprisingly, the media had a great time with that entry and the global public opinion of Amanda would soon lay in the gutter. Never one to rest on their laurels, the UK media doubled down on Amanda's misery by pulling old photos from her Facebook account and they published an image of her from a few years prior where she was posing with an old World War II style minigun at some sort of museum. In the picture, she sat at the trigger and pretended to fire at the camera while laughing like a maniac and in any other circumstances such a picture would probably have been overlooked as just a goofy, silly, relatively innocent snapshot that any other tourist in the world could have taken. But of course, the media are out for blood and they use the image to portray Amanda as a violent-natured psychopath who found the act of killing to be amusing. It was an all-round ugly and cringeworthy performance, to be honest, by all involved. I think it's grossly unfair, this, because, again, a bit like what I was saying before, you could go back on anyone's social media and, and find a picture that could then be deemed to be inappropriate like that. But that's a picture that any of us could have... Um, taken or been in do you know what I mean yeah it's just everything can be taken out of context yeah and to describe her as laughing like a maniac you just think like that's so unfair the media to describe her like that because that could just be how she laughs she's yeah, not so, laughing so what if she was yeah and, and yeah, also, also what if maybe she was? she was and she just found it funny someone had told her a joke yeah, there could be any any number of reasons mm-hmm. for, for that. And it was only really back in her hometown in Seattle, so thousands of miles away, where she received any kind of sympathy or positive coverage. Amanda was portrayed as an innocent woman who was at risk of being scapegoated by the Italians for a murder that she clearly did not commit. Amanda's family and closest friends banded together and formed the Friends of Amanda Movement, a campaign to crowdsource the funds and legal expertise necessary to bring Amanda back to the US where she could receive a fairer trial. And there was even talk of a campaign for the government to send in the US Marines to forcibly take Amanda back from the Italians. And unsurprisingly, as far as the US government is concerned, such an absurd course of action was never considered. Meanwhile, as Amanda was put on remand and waiting to go to prison, she attempted to put pen to paper to explain what had happened. And in her letter that she gave to the detectives as a present, she maintained that Mlumba was the killer and stated that, In my mind, I saw Patrick in flashes of blurred images. I saw him near the basketball court. I saw him at my front door. I saw myself cowering in the kitchen with my hands over my ears because in my head I could hear Meredith screaming. But as I have said so many times so as to make myself clear, these things seem unreal to me, like a dream. Amanda concluded her letter by saying, I want to make it clear that I am very doubtful of the veracity of my statements because they were made under the pressure of stress, shock and extreme exhaustion. From the very beginning, Patrick Lumumba was very vocal about his innocence, insisting that he had nothing to do with the murder and could very easily prove that. He was highly critical of the police and the investigation into Meredith's murder and he made accusations of racial profiling and scapegoating to secure a quick conviction and to look good to the rest of the world. But nevertheless, he was remanded in custody for weeks on end as the police continued their investigation. Life on remand for Amanda was rough to say the very least. As she languished in a prison cell contemplating what the rest of her life was going to look like, the Italian prison staff, who clearly despised her, took pleasure in subjecting her to a prolonged and cruel psychological torture. She was made to undergo a battery of mandatory medical checkups, swabs were taken, she was made to take a blood test, and then a few days later she was approached by prison guards who sat her down and feigned sympathy as they told her that her blood sample had tested positive to HIV thanks no doubt to her promiscuous behavior so amanda obviously believed them and she spent the following couple of weeks in a state of emotional turmoil utterly convinced that she was going to develop aids and die she made new entries into a new diary in which she wrote about her feelings of despair and her desire to go on living and not die of such a dreadful disease 
Her diary was eventually confiscated by the guards and handed to the media, who then also went to town on her and published every last detail that they could find in the diary. After allowing her to suffer for several weeks, the prison guards finally put her out of her misery and laughed as they told her that she was not, in fact, positive for HIV, and they had made the whole thing up just to fuck with her. Honestly, Isn't that what the hell? just awful? I mean, I just, yeah, I, they're just trying to mind fuck her. And yeah, what a terrible thing to do to somebody. It's just horrific. And whilst I think that her writing all this stuff in her diary and even the letter that she's written to the police where she's describing stuff again and she says it's a present to the police, I find that personally is just a bit bizarre. And it, she's clearly someone who has solace in writing down her thoughts because she, even in prison, she's like, I need to get another diary. I need to write stuff. Even though the stuff that she wrote before was then spread across the fucking media. And she would have known that that was one of the things that brought the media to her door and portrayed her as this awful person. She still feels the need to write. So that's clearly her coping mechanism. And then once again, they take her diary and publish it. Publish it. What the fuck? And I think if we go back to what is, yes, more of a blasé example, but someone from Love Island, imagine now in this day and age, if someone from Love Island who was a bit of a, you know, bit of a ladies man on the show and had done some stuff that the media then thought was awful, and then they got his diary entries and they published it, I think that that publication would be just completely shut down. I just don't see that it would happen like this nowadays. I do think the press has moved on so much, even in the last sort of five, six years. So this Mm -hmm. is 2007. Yeah, it's moved on so much. It wouldn't happen now. I was just weirdly remembering a documentary I saw on Netflix years ago, uh, which was Amanda Knox. It was, I think it was a two-part documentary she was in. You might have seen it, Bethan. Um, And I just remember there was a lot of her talking to camera and one bit where I can't remember what she says, but... Or am I a wolf in sheep's clothing? And it was just the way she said it. It's so cold and really sort of building tension of am I a murderer or not? Yeah, that is a weird thing to even kind of, even if you've been told to do that by the producers and stuff. Yeah, she could have It's still weird to actually do it. Elsewhere, the ongoing investigation into Meredith's murder was about to make a major new development. So the breakthrough came with the discovery of a bloody thumbprint on one of Meredith's pillows. And that didn't match the thumbprints of Amanda, Raphael or Patrick. The print was run through several databases and eventually a positive match was established. The print belonged to one Rudy Aman Gued, a 20-year-old immigrant and petty criminal from the Ivory Coast who was living in Perugia at the time of Meredith's death. He was already well known to the Perugia police, so they had no problem finding out where he lived. The police raided his tiny bedsit, but he was nowhere to be found. And instead, they took DNA samples from his toothbrush and began comparing this to the hundreds of DNA samples they'd taken from the crime scene. Before long, they were able to make definitive matches to several DNA samples found on Meredith's body, her bra and her sweatshirt. The detectives quickly began hunting Rudy down and it soon became apparent that he had fled the country in a hurry the day after Meredith had been killed. And luckily it didn't take the police long to catch up with him and he was captured and arrested in Germany and swiftly extradited back to Italy. Rudy Ermangued was born on the 26th of December 1986 on the Ivory Coast and was 20 years old at the time of Meredith's murder. At age five, he and his father had relocated to Italy as economic migrants. His father was desperately poor and struggled to provide for his son, so young Rudy was raised with the help of his school teachers, a local priest and several charitable organisations from the local area. In 2004, when Rudy was 17 years old, his father returned to the Ivory Coast. Rudy opted to stay behind in Italy, but was still legally a minor, so was adopted by a wealthy and charitable Parisian family. Rudy was said to be talented and an enthusiastic athlete who played basketball for the Perugia youth team in the 2004 to 2005 season. It is said that his talent had a lot of potential. He could have realistically gone on to become a professional sportsman. However, he soon fell in with a bad crowd and got involved in delinquency and petty crime, mainly a string of burglaries and break-ins. In one case, he actually broke into a lawyer's office, threw a second floor window and in another he burgled a flat and threatened the occupant with a knife when confronted. So these offences prompted his adoptive family to disown him 
and they basically demanded that he leave their home for good. And I can kind that's of understand that. That's a bit harsh. That. Like, I don't. Oh, do, you, do you think so? No, I think that's really harsh. To adopt him when his dad's gone away and he's gone, dad's gone, I'm going to do this. But I think there should be unconditional love there. And there clearly isn't if they're disowning him. Do you think it's love, though? Or do you think they were just trying to do the right thing for someone whose dad's going perhaps, away? Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, and again, we don't know the full situation. Maybe they were just had it up to here with him and he was damaging the family dynamic and he had to go. They could have been like the last in a long string, couldn't they? And this is some serious stuff. So with the last mm-hmm. uh, offence, so he burgled a flat and threatened the occupant with a knife when confronted... That serious, that is. That is yeah. really bad. To be at the beginning of a criminal career and you're doing stuff like that means you are going to go on to use that knife at some point. Yeah, as a minor especially. So on the 27th of October 2007, so just days before Meredith was killed, Rudy was arrested in Milan after breaking into a nursery school. He was reportedly found by police with a large knife that had been taken from the school kitchen. And it emerged that Rudy had become acquainted with Amanda and Meredith through other students who lived in the flat directly below the girls. So Rudy would regularly go to Amanda and Meredith's apartment to drink and smoke marijuana with them. And it was apparently no secret that he was attracted to Meredith and had made several unsuccessful advances on her. When faced with interrogation, Rudy lied repeatedly through the investigation. He modified his stories based on which news reports to best suit his defence. And detectives traced Rudy's movements backwards and were able to verify that he went to a friend's house at around 11.30pm on the 1st of November 2007, so the night of Meredith's murder. He later went to a nightclub where he stayed until 4.30am. On the following night, he went to the same nightclub, this time with three American female students who he'd met in a bar. But then he inexplicably left Italy in a hurry and went to Germany, and he was unable to explain why he'd fled. After multiple hours of intense interrogation in which he was confronted by the compelling evidence that placed him irrefutably at the scene, Rudy Gred confessed that he had indeed been in the house that night, but denied having anything to do with Meredith's death. Rudy claimed that he and Meredith had kissed and touched but did not have sexual intercourse because they didn't have condoms readily available, and he claimed that he then developed stomach pains and went to the large bathroom on the other side of the apartment. Rudy said that he then heard Meredith scream while he was in the bathroom and that upon emerging he saw a shadowy figure holding a knife and standing over her as she lay bleeding to death on the floor. Rudy claimed that the man uttered a racial slur and fled and after this Rudy tried to save Meredith's life by holding a towel over her wounds but he himself suddenly became afraid for his life and fled the scene. He was unable to explain why he'd failed to raise the alarm or tell anyone about what he'd seen. And doesn't this just sound like the sort of story that someone makes up doesn't it yeah it really does there's so many things it's just yeah i can't even pick it apart and i'm just looking back at at what you've read and yeah i just so much of it is just bollocks isn't it it's just frustrating i think i can imagine the police just standing there being like what so what the the killer's now fled but you're now suddenly fearing for your life after you've realized you can't say what why haven't you called the police like what are you doing? <laughs> like, Yeah, and just... even throwing in that this supposed killer uttered a racial slur and fled. I don't believe that. He's just thrown that out there to detract. Yeah, from... have some other sympathy or to yeah. detract or something. Yeah, or to give some kind of motive somehow. Yeah. Yeah, Bullshit. and really proved himself again and again to be this infuriatingly unreliable witness. So under questioning, Rudy had originally said Amanda Knox had not been at the scene of the crime, but later he changed his story to say that she had been in the apartment at the scene at the time of the murder. And he also claimed that he had heard her arguing with Meredith and that he'd glanced out of a window and seen Amanda's silhouette standing ominously outside oh, the house. Oh, Beth, send help. Yeah, what I mean... A dick. And it's like her silhouette as well, just fucking hell. Like she's um, out of like, I don't know, like some horror movie, like Scream or something, and she's just stood there staring in or something. But I do think this is his reference point to some of this. It's limited experience, obviously, of of this kind of situation. Mm -hmm, Because he is young. Yeah, so you're going to refer to uh, fictional stuff rather than real stuff or experiences you've maybe had or heard about. So, yeah, it's it's very it very much resembles a, a horror film in terms yeah. of what he's painting the scene to be, which it was, but 
the way the words is used and then differently yeah. yeah yeah and unsurprisingly like us the detectives were in no way convinced by rudy's outlandish inconsistent and far-fetched story and furthermore, as the detectives began building a criminal case against Rudy, their case against Patrick Lumumba began to fall apart. So customers who Patrick had been serving all night at his bar on the night of the murder gave him complete alibis. And additionally, despite the abundance of DNA evidence that placed Rudy at the scene, not a single trace of Patrick's DNA was ever found. So in the end, there was not one single compelling piece of tangible evidence that tied Patrick to the killing in any way and so Rudy Gred took Patrick Lumumba's place as prime suspect alongside Amanda and Raphael. Invariably Patrick was then released without charge and dropped from the investigation completely. His innocence was beyond doubt but his reputation was irreparably damaged. Patrick lost his business and was heavily persecuted by locals in Perugia who still believed he was involved somehow. Speaking some years later from Krakow in Poland, where he lives now with his wife after losing the bar in Perugia, struggling to find a job in the wake of the false murder accusation, Patrick said that despite the final ruling, he still believed that Knox held the answer to the case. So he said about Amanda Knox, what Amanda did, I don't know, but I think she knows why Meredith died. Which I thought was very interesting. Mm, that that says an awful lot. He is saying an awful lot there. And yeah, what mm-hmm. a shame for this guy. Completely persecuted and had to run away to a completely different country to try and start his life again and rebuild. And people will still hear his name and think, I know that name, and and think he was partly responsible for this when he had nothing to do with it at all. In December 2007, Amanda Knox was summoned to a courtroom to face an enraged judge who demanded to know why she had implicated an innocent man. Amanda put it down to extreme stress and tried to claim that she was heavily influenced by the police who had used manipulation tactics and leading questions to force a confession out of her. She claimed that the interrogators slapped her, starved her, refused to let her use the bathroom or call a lawyer. A police official who was present in the courtroom rejected Amanda's claims and told the judge that the suspect had been treated firmly, but also ethically and with respect. The judge sided with the police and harshly handed down an indeterminate amount of additional jail time for giving false information and slandering an innocent man. So that sentence was to run concurrently on top of whatever she received at her upcoming murder trial. And I think even the way that they've sentenced that shows that they just think that she's guilty anyway. And I just think how harsh, because obviously the police offi- official is going to say, no, we didn't. Yeah, Surely I, I there think should be a proper yeah, investigation. Of course. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I um, I think it's really harsh. I think they're just, they fucking hate her at this point. And they've, they've fucked with her so much. And, and this is just another layer of fucking with her, isn't it? Of uh, It's like when you've got a child and you lose your patience with it. That's what they're doing with her. They're losing their patience and, and punishing her just because. So I think this is really unfair. I really do. On the flip side, I do agree that she shouldn't have falsely accused someone, blah, blah, blah. But when someone's making a, a claim that they had this confession forced out of them... Yeah, like it needs to be looked into properly. It's just, yeah. Meanwhile, back in Perugia, the detectives were busy sort of building the case against Amanda, Raphael and Rudy. So they had Rudy's DNA, which irrefutably placed him at the scene. The detectives also discovered a knife at Raphael's home, which perfectly matched the size and shape of the neck wound that had proved to be the fatal blow on Meredith's neck. And there was a tiny amount of Raphael's DNA on the handle, an even smaller amount of Meredith's on the blade. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, So this was enough to convince the police that they had the murder weapon. However, they still needed something much stronger to prove that Amanda and Raphael's guilt was beyond reasonable doubt. 46 days after the murder, they returned to the crime scene to search for further DNA evidence. They then discovered traces of Amanda Knox's DNA mixed with Meredith's in five separate bloodstains in the flat. They re-examined the bloodied footprints on the bath mat as well as other footprints found around parts of the flat. So the blood belonged to Meredith, but it was revealed that the size and shape of the footprint itself was an exact match for Amanda. On another footprint, they found it was the exact size and shape match for Raphael. However, the whole investigation was hit by heavy controversy when they also discovered the missing clasp from Meredith's bra under a floor mat, so nobody could explain how or why it had not been found sooner. 
Nevertheless, the detectives went ahead and forensically tested the clasp anyway and reported that they had discovered a good amount of Raphael's DNA on it. However, the motion to use the clasp as evidence was blocked by the defence counsel for Amanda, Raphael and Rudy after they successfully convinced a judge that the clasp should be rendered as inadmissible evidence because, and I kind of agree with them here, arguing that having been left at the crime scene and undetected for 46 days it was almost certainly contaminated and you just think like yeah but it's frustrating isn't it because when you were describing the crime scene and this seems like a very odd thing it seems like the killers tried to take a trophy or something it is weird i can't really explain it it yeah you want to know more about it the fact that it was found um under a floor mat again i want to know more about that was that just like your basic standard doormat or was this like you know the carpets that some people have in their houses that are pretty much stuck to the floor they've just got like grippy tape or something and they never moved yeah like what what is it and also the officers did do a really thorough job at that crime scene yeah so how they did they miss not this lifted up a mat, surely? no of course not of course not Despite the controversy, the detectives now felt confident that they could use the footprints and the stack of DNA evidence to definitively place Rudy, Amanda and Raphael at the scene and the three prime suspects were forced to remain in prison on remand as they awaited their trials. Rudy Gwed shied away from the intense media presence and opted to have a fast-track trial in front of a judge with no reporters present at all. He told the court that he had gone to Via della Pagola 7 on a pre-arranged date with Meredith after meeting her at the nightclub the previous evening. However, the prosecutor disputed this, stating that there was no evidence that Meredith had attended the nightclub that night, let alone agreed to a date with Rudy. And furthermore, two neighbours of Rudy's who were with him at the nightclub on the evening had earlier told police that the only girl they saw him talking to had long blonde hair. But Rudy stuck to his story and said that Meredith had let him into the apartment around 9pm. When he got there, Meredith was, according to him, extremely angry, as she believed that Amanda had stolen money from her. He had then comforted her, at which point the pair began kissing and touching. However, there was one obvious problem with Rudy's story that ultimately sealed his fate. If Rudy was indeed telling the truth, and a fuzzy-haired stranger had emerged from the shadows and killed Meredith while Rudy was in the bathroom before fleeing... At what point had this violent stranger found the time to trash the house? Why had neither Meredith nor Rudy been alarmed by the sounds of a home invasion unfolding on the other side of a thin, single wooden bedroom door had they been trashing the house before they came to murder her? And the court decided that his version of events just didn't match the scientific evidence and they were convinced that Rudy could not logically explain why one of his thumbprints, which was stained with Meredith's blood, could be found on her pillow and her naked body as Rudy had earlier insisted he'd left Meredith when she was fully dressed. Rudy's defence insisted and argued that Rudy had taken Meredith in his arms and tried to save her. He tried to stop the bleeding by pressing his hands over the wounds. And whilst the court accepted that this could well be true, they then couldn't understand why Rudy would have gone to all this effort to save her life, only to then get up and run away with it. They hadn't even called an ambulance. You know, you've done all of this, but why would you not then call for help it's just awful isn't it all of this i just i can't deal with him yeah i can't deal with him so needless to say rudy failed spectacularly to convince the court of his innocence and on october the 28th 2008 rudy gwed was found guilty of killing meredith kircher and was sentenced to 30 years in prison Later that very same day, another judge determined that Rudy did not act alone and that there was enough evidence for Amanda Knox and Raphael Solisto to stand full trial on murder charges. Almost a year after Meredith's murder, in September 2008, Amanda and Raphael appeared before a judge and both entered a plea of not guilty. And the trial, which was swarmed by legions of journalists and news reporters from around the world, began on the 16th of January 2009. Amanda Knox and Raphael Solisto stood accused of murder, sexual assault, carrying a knife and simulating a burglary. All eyes were now on the globally infamous Foxy Noxy. The world wanted justice for Meredith Kircher. The prosecution alleged that Amanda and Raphael, along with Rudy Gwed, had killed Meredith in a sex game gone wrong. So according to the prosecution, Amanda had attacked Meredith in her bedroom, repeatedly banged her head against a wall, forcefully held her face and tried to strangle her, 
and they hypothesized that Rudy Amanda and Raphael had removed Meredith's jeans and held onto her hands and knees while Rudy sexually abused her. Amanda had then cut Meredith with a knife several times as an act of torture before intentionally inflicting a stab wound to her neck, stealing her mobile phone and her money and faking the burglary. And do you know what I really don't like? I don't like the words sex game because that kind of makes you feel like Meredith was any part of it. And fair enough, they're not saying she was. They're saying this is a sex game between the three of them. But it just makes it seem so yeah, it's not a, Yeah, it's not a fucking game. This is a barbaric, sadistic sexual attack. Yeah. This like is that. very different to a sex game gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Amanda and Raphael denied the accusations and through their defence counsel stuck staunchly to their original story that they had spent the night together at Raphael's apartment on the night that Meredith was killed. The court was shown a detailed presentation of all the DNA evidence that had been discovered at the scene, which, as the prosecutor alleged, placed Amanda and Raphael at the scene. Most notable of which was the bloodstain in the bathroom sink, which was a mixture of Amanda and Meredith's blood. And so according to the prosecution, this was a strong indicator that a fight had occurred between the two women, likely the result of Meredith fighting for her life and injuring Amanda in the process. However, Amanda's lawyers argued that this finding meant absolutely nothing. Given that Amanda and Meredith were young and female and living in such close proximity, the defence argued that it was perfectly reasonable that one might discover mixed-up traces of blood, especially in the bathroom. And they also theorised that as the DNA mix was found in the bathroom sink, it could easily be a mixture of blood from Meredith and saliva from Amanda. There was no way to prove that this was not the case because the source of the DNA samples hadn't been definitively identified. And I think that's really interesting, because quite often when they were saying about like footprints and stuff, and they had mixes of DNA, well, that could be someone's dead skin cells that are on the floor because they live in that house. Yeah, I thought the same. But it's almost what, what the Lord giveth with this crime scene, the Lord taketh away. So just when you sort of think, oh, this is, this is damning. There's something that is quite, can quite legitimately be explained away, like, like this blood uh, sample. Yeah. And the supposed murder weapon, so that kitchen knife found in Raphael's kitchen, was also presented to the court. An earlier DNA test had found a small amount of Meredith's DNA on the blade. Um, And obviously that seems pretty cut and dry, really, because she hadn't been to his house. Why would she have ever been in his apartment? But when the defence counsel viewed that particular DNA report, they noted the words too low had been written down in the notes without context. So... They took that note to mean that Meredith's DNA was found low down on a section of the blade that had not entered her neck. Um, So the defence argued that the evidence was at best unreliable. And it's an odd, like, why would you have that note written there? Like, that's then thrown this completely into unknown territory. The evidence of Raphael's DNA being on this so-called murder weapon was also scoffed at by the defence because, after all, they said it was his knife and he used it almost every day to prepare food. Of course, it had his DNA evidence on it. The prosecution also controversially mentioned the fact that Raphael's DNA was found on Meredith's bra clasp, and the defence countered by reiterating their previous argument that the clasp had been collected 46 days after the fact and was likely contaminated and therefore useless in the case. Which is fair. I think so too. I think if if you're not allowed to bring it to the case, then you can't mention it, surely. And it's with DNA, and obviously we're not experts. Um, and we talked about it recently, but with jo- John Bonet Ramsey, but it's weird, isn't it? Like DNA is just fucking everywhere. People's DNA is all over the place. So, and that can be in the form of blood, skin cells, hair, all sorts of horrible stuff. It's just everywhere. So, I don't know, it can get contaminated so easily. So, that bra clasp lying there for 46 days yeah of course it's going to be completely compromised and contaminated of course it is i get it the many inconsistencies that have been uncovered in amanda and Raphael's alibis were also put forward for example the prosecution produced evidence that Raphael had turned on his mobile phone at 6am on the morning that meredith's body was discovered which directly disproved his earlier claim that he and amanda had slept in till 10am but I don't know about you, Mark, like if I wake up, sometimes I'll check what time it is and then go back to sleep. And it's not something that really registers. You still would, you'd still say I slept until 10am, even if you turn on your phone, gone, oh God, it's only six, I'll go back to bed. 
Yeah, he so, could have like woken up to go to the loo and turned his phone on and gone back to bed and barely, that would barely register. Yeah. And then you wake up at 10 and, and yeah, you, you're saying we got up at 10. So yeah, again, I think that's picking holes really. They also planted doubt by highlighting the fact that Raphael had, for unexplained reasons, called the police to report the break-in, even though the police were already there. And I think I kind of agree with them on this point because the prosecution theorised he did this. He was under a lot of stress and he was following a pre-arranged plan. So the plan was, we get there, we notice this, we call the police. He was so highly strung out in that moment that he kind of hadn't really re-evaluated the nymph provised on the plan to kind of best suit the events of the morning. So he just stuck to the plan. And, and that, and you, that you, does make sense I could see to me. that you would. Yeah, it makes absolute sense to me. I think you've you've gone through it in your head so many times and it plays out like a scene in a film. And then when something happens and throws that off track, you can't deviate from the script. So you still call the police. So that does make an awful lot of sense that it was pre-planned as part of this pre-arranged plan that they had. It was also highlighted multiple times that Amanda had falsely implicated an innocent man for the crime, which proved she was nothing but a liar. And the defence put up a good fight against the evidence put forward by the prosecution, but there was just simply too much of it for them to handle. In the end, after almost 12 months of court proceedings, more than 50 hearings and listening to dozens of witness testimonies, the jury ultimately sided with the prosecution. On the 4th of December 2009, Amanda Knox and Raphael Celesto were found guilty of all charges. As the verdict was delivered, Raphael's impassive face provided a stark contrast to Amanda, who broke down in tears and sobbed loudly in the courtroom. Amanda was sentenced to a minimum of 26 years behind bars, whilst Raphael was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years. Amanda's additional year was given as punishment for falsely implicating Patrick Lumumba. After the sentence had been passed, the Kircher family welcomed the verdict. The Knox family, however, offered no comment, but did confirm that they planned to appeal the decision. Three weeks after Amanda and Raphael were convicted, Rudy had his prison term cut from 30 to 24 years. So under Italian law, custodial sentences that are made under a fast-track trial are eligible for an automatically one-third reduction. So for Rudy, this resulted in a final sentence of 16 years. Um, so considering so I, I guess his was, I guess it was initially cut from 30 to 24 to bring it more in line with, with theirs, Amanda yeah. and Raphael's. And then he's had a third taken yeah. off to bring it down to 16. Yeah. Isn't that crazy though? When you think like them two are getting 25 and 26 years and he, who they've now said is the murderer, 16. But then yes, but it's a bit like if you plead guilty, you'll get a you'll reduction get in your sentence yeah, in this country. Exactly. It's 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 almost they want to see a huge respect for the justice system. Yeah. And pleading guilty or a fast track trial which is cheaper will will get you a reduction in sentence. I I do get it. Whereas if you plead not guilty like Raphael and Amanda, that they, they take grave offence at that almost, don't they, the justice system people. Yeah, that you've not so had any remorse and you're not them. going to admit to it. But you're yeah. kind of like, But I haven't done it, so yeah. And judges will often slam uh, defendants that are found guilty who have pled not guilty, will often slam them and say, you should have pleaded guilty, you are guilty, and you've now caused £2 million trial to take place, which didn't have to take place, and you've caused trauma to the jury and and witnesses who have had to come and give evidence. It's, I mean, I, I did, obviously, I sat on a jury and talked about it in a Patreon special we did, mm-hmm. and that trial collapsed less before even the halfway point but the woman who was claiming to have been sexually abused as a child was due to give evidence the next day and I can only imagine how traumatic that must be to stand up in a court of law it's the most serious environment you will ever be in if you're unfortunate enough to have to be in that environment and intimidating and to have to stand up there and give evidence and there would have been yeah, it would have been a lot of trauma for a lot of people, the fact that that trial had to take place and was drawn out with Amanda and Raphael. So I think it's fair that they got a longer sentence. A lawyer representing the Kutcher family did protest at this drastic reduction in the sentence, but ultimately the judge upheld that final sentence. So that was that. The Knox family were adamant that the story was not over for their daughter and they launched the lengthy appeal process almost immediately. 
and the appeal trial began over a year later in November 2010. The appeal focused almost exclusively on the contested DNA evidence that had been put forward by the prosecution in the original trial. So Amanda and Raphael's legal teams urged the judges to consider whether or not it was enough to place the pair at the crime scene beyond a reasonable doubt. Independent experts were called in to offer their professional opinions and several of them noted numerous basic errors in the gathering and analysis of the evidence and concluded that no evidential trace of Meredith's DNA had actually been found on the alleged murder weapon. Although the review confirmed the DNA fragments on the bra clasp did include some from Raphael, an expert testified that the sample showed clear signs of contamination. As for Amanda's confession, the judges accepted that Amanda had made these statements under extreme duress and without the presence of legal representation. The police's interrogations were called into question and the judge agreed that the interviewing officers had acted unethically and outside of their legal limitations. So therefore the confession was disregarded entirely. So... On the 3rd of October 2011, to the shock and displeasure of the rest of the world, Amanda Knox and Raphael Celicito were controversially acquitted of murder and sexual assault after the judge ruled that the original proof was insufficient. The conviction of Amanda's false implication of Patrick Lumumba was upheld, but she was released owing to time already served. The final decision definitively ended the case. For the time being, the nightmare for Amanda Knox and Raffaello Celesto was finally over. And speaking of the decision, Amanda later told the media, The knowledge of my innocence has given me strength in the darkest times of this ordeal. And she promptly left Italy and returned to the USA as a free woman. In 2013, the prosecution in the case launched a counter-appeal, on the grounds that the defence's appeal had overlooked numerous elements from the original case. Amanda, to the surprise of absolutely nobody on earth, refused to turn, return to Italy for the trial and only Raphael, who was still residing in Italy, was legally bound to attend it but the judge upheld its decision that there was too much doubt over his and Amanda's involvement and the case was thrown out and closed for good. Not long after her autopsy, Meredith's body was repatriated back to her home in London and a funeral was held on the 14th of December 2007 at Croydon Minster. More than 300 mourners attended the service, which was followed by a private burial at Mitcham Road Cemetery. The degree that Kircher would have received in 2009 was awarded posthumously by the University of Leeds. And I was just saying to Mark, I can never remember how to say that word. It's such a tricky one to say. But how lovely that they um, did do that, that they knew that she was on track and that she would have would have achieved that yeah it must have been a really bittersweet moment for her family mm. at that time yeah after leaving prison life for amanda knox was far from straightforward after returning to the united states she completed her degree and then she published a tell-all book about her experiences with the italian justice system over the years that followed, Amanda struggled to readjust to normal life and was constantly haunted by the ghosts of her past. She was often followed and hounded relentlessly by paparazzi and the Knox family incurred enormous amounts of debt from the years of financially supporting her while she was being detained in Italy. Most of the proceeds of her book, so Waiting to be Heard, a memoir, which did become a bestseller, basically contributed to just paying off the legal fees owed to her Italian lawyers. So it wasn't even like she was really making money off this. It was just kind of another reminder. And Amanda went on to become a journalist for a Seattle-based newspaper. So in a 2017 interview, Amanda said she was devoting herself to work as a journalist and was also planning to become an activist for the wrongly accused. She hosted the Scarlet Letter Reports on Facebook Watch, a series which examined the gendered nature of public shaming and also hosted a true crime podcast named The Truth About True Crime. In June 2019, Amanda returned to Italy as a keynote speaker at a conference on criminal justice where she was part of a panel titled Trial by Media. I do think, I don't know, like it's, it's so her, isn't it? She's still very public, but equally, why shouldn't she be? Why shouldn't she speak out about all of this? Yeah, because if, if she is innocent in this, then you would want to get this story out there. You would you would want to continue, even though she's been essentially found not guilty because it was all... I mean, it's hard to keep up with it all. It's got guilty, then it's overturned, then guilty again, then overturned, then I'm not going back anyway and whatever. But even though she is innocent in the eyes of the law, lots of people will say that she's guilty. So she will naturally want to continue to 
have her voice heard and and to say that yeah it's it's this is not the true version of events i had nothing to do with this Amanda is married to her longtime boyfriend and author Christopher Robinson and in October 2021 the couple announced the birth of their daughter in an interview with the New York Times. Rudy was released from prison on the 24th of November 2021 so 45 days early for good behaviour and he now lives somewhere in Italy as a free man. During a 2022 interview with a US media source, the freed convict said, The first thing I want to say is to the Kircher family and how sorry I am for their loss. I have written a letter to them in which I explain to them how sorry I am, but it's too late to say sorry for not doing enough to save Meredith. The court accepted that I tried to save her by putting towels on her wounds. And this annoys me so much. You've been in prison this long and you're still sticking with your I tried to save her story because I was in the bathroom and some random person came in and did all this. Like, that really frustrates me. He also said, The court convicted me of being an accessory to murder purely because my DNA was there, but the legal documents say others were there and that I did not inflict the fatal wounds. When he was asked about the wrongly convicted Amanda Knox and Raphael Solisto, he said, I don't want to say anything other than that she should read the documents. As I told you, they say others were there and I did not inflict the stab wounds. I know the truth and she knows the truth. And I think that is a very interesting point to finish on because I feel like a lot of our listeners are going to say she was guilty and a lot of our listeners are going to say she's innocent and it'll be a real split. Oh, well, let us know what you think, as always. Uh, Please do comment below and um, don't forget to check out our show sponsor, which is betterhelp.com slash red for 10% off your first month. And if you are able to and want to support us on Patreon, it does make a huge difference to us and to the show as well. All you need to do is head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and um, it takes two minutes to sign up and there's no minimum term with it and there's loads of bonus content on there uh, for you to check out. So um, we would really appreciate that. Thank you for listening and we will be back next week with another case. See you then, guys. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.